sermon text this morning is 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Y'all can be seated. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take out a copy of God's word and turn to 1 John. Our preschoolers and their teachers, y'all can be dismissed at this time. We're in 1 John chapter 3. If you're not aware, 1 John is toward the end of your Bible. It's a small-ish letter. The Apostle John wrote, wrote three letters that we have here, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is the longest of the three. We'll be in 1st John 3, verses 2 through 10. And we've come to the end of our series on gospel culture. And and if I don't know if you've been aware of this or not, but what we've been doing over the past few weeks is we've been casting a vision for the way of life in our church. We, we've been asking questions like, what do we want our communal character or our life together as a church to be like? What do we want the experience to be like? What, what do we want others to see in us? When they're with us, what kind of church do we want to leave for our children to grow up in and to, to then carry on long after we're gone? What kind of culture do we want to embody? And we saw the first week of the series from Galatians 2 that our church must, this is, this is not an option, we must embody a culture that is in step with the gospel. That's why we call it a gospel culture. The way of life in our church must reflect and be characteristic of the gospel that we believe. And we've seen when this happens, Jesus will be seen in and through us. Now, what we also saw and observed is that in order for this to happen, we need, you know, a, a tool. We need something to make this happen. And, and one of the things that we need is a formula. And we, we, we shared with you the second week of this series the formula of gospel plus safety, plus time is necessary for a gospel culture to grow and thrive in our church. And in, in order to build this, this type of culture we want, we have to have 
a gospel-centered heartbeat. We have to have safe environments to be honest about our problems so we can grow. And we need much time to grow because our lives are complex. Patience is required. And then what we've done over the past three Sundays, including this one, is that we have observed three primary characteristics of a gospel culture. In other words, when the gospel takes root in our church, we said three big fruits will grow. Humility, love, and holiness. So two weeks ago, we saw that the gospel creates a culture of humility, which means that in a gospel culture, you see things like honesty instead of hypocrisy, honor instead of shame, service instead of apathy. Last week, we saw that the gospel creates a culture of love, which means that in a gospel culture, you see things like grace and not judgment, welcome and not just mere toleration, and joy and not bitterness. This is the culture the gospel creates. And today, we're going to see that the gospel also creates a culture of holiness, which means in a gospel culture, you will see a pursuit of righteousness and the killing of sin through healthy spiritual habits. When the gospel takes root in a church, it will produce a community of people who collectively pursue the likeness of Jesus, righteousness. Meaning that we will strive together to do what is right, to live our lives in obedience to God. And it's going to produce a community of people who collectively put sin to death which means that we will strive together to resist temptation, walk in the light, confess, and repent of our sin. So if we're going to summarize this entire series that we've been in, you really only need a few words, okay? Here's what you need. You need gospel culture, and then you need gospel plus safety plus time, and then you need humility, love, and holiness. And it just trees down. The idea, gospel culture, The means through which we get there, gospel safety time, and the characteristics that you see when you have it. Humility, love, and holiness. Now, I I do have to ask, as we begin to talk about holiness, because this characteristic is different than the other two of humility and love. When we talked about humility, the common response from you guys, it was something like, man, I needed that sermon. I need to hear that so often, because we all know how prideful we are. We know how prideful we can be, and then I probably scared you to death from the the C.S. Lewis quotes where he's like, if you don't admit you're prideful, you're more prideful than anybody else. And you're like, well, dang, I mean, I guess I better admit that I'm really prideful. And it's like, gotcha, you know. Um, So the the sermon on humility just made you feel like convicted. And then the sermon on love, a lot of you were like, yes, that's exactly what I need. I love this about God, and we need to have a church like this where there's grace and welcome and joy, and, and we're loving each other. We all want that to happen. Holiness is a little different. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about not only pursuing holiness in your own individual life, but being a part of a church culture that is marked by holiness? What, what comes to mind? What, what ideas? Maybe, maybe rules, a bunch of rules, uh, lists of do's and don'ts. Do you, know, do you know what I think about when I think about a church culture marked by holiness? I think about the movie Shrek. Okay, the movie Shrek. Uh, This is a millennial illustration, probably, or parents of millennials, if you guys watch Shrek with your kids. Anybody in here have seen the movie Shrek? 
Okay, yeah, a few of you, yeah, those that didn't raise your hand, you're just holier than the rest of us, okay, that's just what it is. Um, but in the movie Shrek, Shrek and Donkey, uh, two characters in, in the movie, they go to the town of Duloc, and Duloc is where the, the king resides, and uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous and, and silly, but they, they need to go there, I'm not going to spoil the plot for you, really get into it, it doesn't matter that much. But when they're there, they, they come up to this, like, board. It's almost like a welcome center, and, and they, they're trying to figure out, like, where the king is, and they, they walk up, and it automatically starts playing this little jingle, this little song. And it's one of those, like, brainwashy songs, you know, where it's like, you know, this is, this is a wonderful place, and even though the king is, like, a tyrant, and he just, like, controls everybody's lives. And the song goes like this. Welcome to Duloc, such a perfect town. Here we have some rules, let us lay them down. See, it's really, really clever. And then it says, don't make waves, stay in line, and we'll get along fine. Duloc is a perfect place. And just like these really weird, you know, by the way, Zach, sign me up. Um, get me a microphone. Um, I, I, I wanna, I'm a, I'll be at the meeting uh, after church today to, to sing. Um, but it's Duloc. It's this perfect place where everybody follows. As long as you do what they follow the rules and you stay in line and you never shake things up, then you're going to, you know, do well here in Duloc. It's a perfect place. And, you know, whenever I think about a church culture that's marked by holiness, it's like, oh, it's, oh, okay, I know what you're saying there, where everybody's fake and superficial and everybody looks really holy and put together on the outside and you don't really know how people are on the inside that's that's how it is so maybe when you hear that a gospel culture is a holy culture you think that we're going to be trying to build this superficial happy perfect place where the leaders lead behind the scenes with an iron fist in all honesty you probably don't think of Shrek when you think of holiness I'm, I'm just weird um, but you may feel a little uncomfortable hearing that we're going to be pursuing a church culture marked by holiness and righteousness and obedience. And when you think about a holy church culture, you might think of a rigid, harsh, condescending church culture. You may have been a part of those. Or, or maybe you think of spy culture when you think of holy church culture. You know what I'm talking about? Spy church culture where everyone's watching you. Everyone's always watching another millennial movie, Angels in the Outfield. You know, they're all, we're always watching the angels. They're always watching. Um, so you're, you're, where people are always watching your every single move, and they're spying on you, and they're just waiting for you to slip up, and they, they see the, oh, they posted a picture. They were going to a movie. That movie's rated PG-13, and they took their 12-year-old to that movie. Oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? And you report them to the elders. You, you know, you know, you, you know cultures like this. Or, or maybe you've, you've been in a church culture where holiness is really redefined to mean following the rules that are established by other people in the church. And so the church uses the Bible as a basis for their rules, but then they set their own rules up based on their own interpretations of the Bible and hold you accountable not to God's word, but to their own interpretations of God's word. This is what the Pharisees did. We typically call this legalism. Now, if you feel apprehensive or uncomfortable because of these experiences you've had, I am right there with you. Too many churches have done too much damage to people through legalistic and judgmental church cultures where people who are genuinely trying to put their sin to death or genuinely trying to follow Jesus are not able to do that because there's no safety, there's no love, there's no grace, there's no patience, and there's no room to grow. On the other hand, though, those of us who do want to avoid and flee legalistic church cultures, we have to admit 
that we are susceptible to forget or neglect the pursuit of holiness as we build a culture based on God's grace. So today is especially important for those of us who love to emphasize God's grace to forgive. His love to accept us despite our sin. And our freedom from the law and from our shame over sin. Today is especially important for those of us who love the ideas that we shared the past two weeks. That the gospel creates a culture of humility which leads to honesty, honor, and service. And that the gospel creates a culture of love which leads to grace and welcome and joy. And we should love these things. But we also need to observe the bulk of the New Testament. Paul, Peter, John, as we're going to see today, and James. Each of these men saw and taught that though we are saved by grace alone, the grace that saves is never alone. And they each saw that we are prone to draw the wrong conclusion that since we are saved by grace, obedience doesn't matter anymore. Or that holiness is unimportant. That's actually why John wrote the passage that we have before us today. And, and that's why I want to emphasize that holiness is not just a part of the Christian life. It is a crucial, primary characteristic of a gospel culture. All over the New Testament, we see example after example of how the gospel of Jesus empowers his people to be holy as he is holy. So a church that is in step with the gospel, if we want that, we can't just embody the love and the grace and the mercy and the gentleness and the welcome and the joy and humility and honesty of Jesus. We have to embody his holiness as well. So I want to show you two things today from 1 John 3 to, to talk about how a church culture is marked by holiness. First, we're going we're gonna to see why holiness is a characteristic of a gospel culture. I can't just say it. I have to prove it. I have to, I have to show you from from God's word, that, that holiness actually is characteristic of a gospel culture. So wh why is it? And then the second point we're going to make is what holiness looks like in a gospel culture. Because it's really easy for us to get confused, and it's really easy for us to go off the rails, either toward legalism or toward antinomianism. So these two points. First, why is holiness a characteristic of a gospel culture? Well, John shows us how the gospel creates a culture of holiness in the first three verses of chapter 3. And we can actually back up to verse 28, but we're not going to do that. And we didn't have verse 1 read because it's a little bit outside the scope, but it, it's really important. And he does this, he does this, he, he shows how the gospel creates a culture of holiness by emphasizing two truths about us and two truths about Jesus. Two truths about us and two truths about Jesus. And he begins with two truths about us. In these first few verses, John says two things are true of us at the same time. He says, we are both what we will always be. Okay, we are, we are both what we will always be and not yet what we will one day be. So, so we, we are what we will always be and we are not yet what we will one day be. We are simultaneously children of God and sinners in need of growth and change. 
Our status as children of God is fixed, never to be changed. Yet our experience of our status as children of God is incomplete. And as Paul put it in, in all kinds of places, we are both saved right now and we are both and we are being saved. We are justified and we are being sanctified. So the first truth about us, holiness is a characteristic of a gospel culture because of who we are right now. First thing about us, because of who we are right now. John says we are God's children now. I love how he says it in verse 2. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. Don't you love that emphasis? Right now. That's not something you have to wait for. If you've come to faith in Jesus, you don't have to wait for something else to happen for you to be called a child of God. You don't have to wait to go to heaven. You don't have to wait for Jesus to return. Right now, you are a child of God. From the moment you first trusted Jesus onward to into eternity, you are God's child. This is both a status and an identity. We have the status of God's children, meaning we are heirs of his promises. And we have this identity where we're able to view ourselves right now as being God's children. Salvation belongs to us. We have a place in the family. Now, how did that happen? Because John is about to talk all about obeying God, pursuing holiness. And, and he's going to use some really strong language. But we have to see why right now we are children of God. He tells us in verse 1. Look at verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Okay, listen. He's saying we are children of God because God loved us, not because we loved him. Our place in the family of God as children, our salvation, it is rooted in God, not us. So we are children of God on the grounds that God loves us, on the basis of his love, not on the basis of our obedience. John's giving us an, an exposition of the gospel. This is, this is the gospel of God's grace. He's grounding our pursuit of holiness in the gospel. The gospel is our basis for a holy church culture. Okay, that's the first truth about us, who we are now. The second truth about us is what we're not now. Holiness is a characteristic of a gospel culture because of what we are not now. So John says in verse 2, we are God's children now. And then he says, and, both of these are true at the same time, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What, what we will be has not yet appeared. This means that God is not finished with us yet. We're God's children right now, but he is not finished with us yet. We are, we, are, we are unfinished products. We will one day be something far greater than we are now. So right now, we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet appeared. This forms the basis for a pursuit of holiness. And in fact, the very next thing John says proves it to be so. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. As he is pure. That verse, verse 3, it, it is a concise summary statement for why holiness has to be a part of the gospel culture. Because of the gospel, we are children of God. But what we will be has not yet appeared. So if your hope is in Jesus, if you believe the gospel, what are we to do? You will purify yourself. 
And this is so important because it forms the basis for holiness in our church. We are not called to be holy as a means of earning salvation or winning a place in God's family. Instead, we are called to be holy because we live between the times of God making us his children by his grace and the appearance of what we will ultimately be. So a holy church culture is not a legalistic church culture. Building a church culture marked by holiness, righteous living, and obedience to God is directly rooted in the gospel of God's past and future grace. Okay, so, so that's two things about us. But John also shows us why, why holiness is characteristic of a gospel culture by emphasizing two truths about Jesus. He directly connects our pursuit of holiness to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So first, who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is not just gentle and lowly. He, he is not just gracious and welcoming. He's not just humble and loving. Jesus is also holy and righteous. He is pure. He is perfectly set apart from sin and lawlessness, evil and wickedness. John says, Everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself. Why? Because he is pure. This means that we are called to be holy for the simple reason that Jesus is holy. And so if our, if our church is going to embody a culture that makes the real Jesus visible, we have to be like him. We have to be holy. The appearance of our future glorified selves it will be a future that is marked by perfect purity and holiness. John said in verse 2 toward the end, he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. And then he says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will, we will see him as he is. That's the end goal of our salvation, this whole thing. The end goal is that we will all perfectly look like Jesus. We will be like him, and we will see him as he is in the full array of his holiness and purity, and we will be like that. We will be like mirrors to Jesus, reflecting his holiness on that day when he returns and takes us home. And so while we wait for that day, John is telling us, we are called to pursue what we will one day be, like Jesus. So it's connected to who Jesus is, his purity, his holiness. But, but the second thing that, that he tells us about Jesus is, is rooted in what Jesus did. Holiness is a characteristic of a gospel culture because of what Jesus did for us. We tend to forget that Jesus' death on the cross did more for us than grant us forgiveness. That's what we usually emphasize. When we, when we evangelize with others, which is usually more appropriate, when we talk about the gospel here at church, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the sermons that we preach, typically when we say that Jesus died for you, what we're emphasizing is his grace to forgive you of past sins and future sins, but it's his grace to forgive, his pardon. But Jesus' death in our place removed not just the penalty of sin, it removed the power of sin over our lives as well. Jesus died for our holiness. And, and John puts it this way in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, You know that he appeared 
in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He goes on to say, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So follow John's logic here. Jesus died to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. On that basis, do not keep on sinning. There's something embedded and connected to the death of Jesus in your place that empowers you, gives you the ability to resist temptation and flee and put sin to death. He says, don't keep on sinning. Why? Because Jesus died to take away sins. That's why. Now, John could have said, Jesus came to take away sins, so take heart, your sins are forgiven. And he says just as much elsewhere in this letter, even. But right here, he's emphasizing that Jesus came to take away sins to empower us to renounce a life of sin and pursue a life of holiness. So on the basis of Jesus' pure character, his sinlessness, and on the basis of his death, which gives us power to kill sin, we are called to be holy as individuals and as a church. And what we see through who we are now, what we will be later, who Jesus is and what Jesus did is that the gospel empowers and motivates us to become like Jesus in our thoughts, words, and actions. And so the gospel creates a culture of holiness in the church. Well, what does that look like, though? So, okay, you you may agree. It seems like the gospel of God's grace actually should where there's a group of people, a community of people who are believing the gospel, it should create individual lives of holiness and communal lives of holiness. So a church that is holy, it should probably do that, and you agree with that. Well, what does that look like? Because we can go off the rails. It's very easy for us to go off the rails because we are not holy as God is holy right now. What we will one day be is not yet our reality. So we can go off the rails. What does holiness look like in a church culture? What's it look like? When we use the word holiness, especially when we think about holiness as a characteristic of a gospel culture, we're not talking about a sinless church culture. As in, if, if we learn that someone else in the church has sinned in a big way, that it's like, well, we're not holy enough. Or if, if you are struggling with a sin right now, you think, well, I can't be a part of a culture like that. Because I just, I I sin too much. We need to be careful and and clear about what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfect church culture. This is not Duloc and Shrek. Um, Holiness in the church is more about pursuits, practices, and habits than it is individual actions that we might could put in a vacuum. When we say holiness or holy church culture, we are talking about continuing in righteousness as opposed to continuing in sin. We're going to see John's language here in a minute. It is very specific, and we gotta, we got to look at it slowly and carefully. In a gospel culture, two things happen. Two things happen. First, we put sin to death together. Together, we put sin to death, and Second, we practice righteousness. We put sin to death, we practice righteousness. First, holiness in the church involves a practice or a habit 
of putting sin to death. You see, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, a lot of individuals, uh, Christians, miss this. They believe that the concern for our individual lives and our corporate life as a church is that we will commit individual sins. And when you say sin can destroy a church, that's typically what you mean when you say that. You're talking about like individual sins. And you think of examples of really big sins that maybe pastors have committed or or church members have, and it just destroyed the fabric of a church. And that absolutely can happen. But the biggest threat to the culture of our church is not individual sins. Because, you know, in in a sense it is, but the answer to that is the return of Jesus, where, you know, we'll be a glorified people where there will be no more sin. But what about now where we live in this tension, where we are God's children and we are forgiven, but we also still have a sinful nature and we still commit individual sins. To say the biggest threat to our church is individual sins, that's that's not enough. And it's really not true. The biggest threat to our church is if we make sin a practice. We practice sin. We continue in sin. We keep on sinning, as as John says here. We develop habits of sin. The biggest threat to our church is unrepentant, habitual sin. We have to be really precise about that. The culture of our church is in danger if collectively as a body we are unrepentant and we are habitual in our sins. So here's what John says. Here's what John says in verses 4 through 7. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Now, John's using really strong language, and it gets stronger. So bear with me. But John is not saying that only those who never sin are true Christians. So you're not a true Christian if you sin. That's not what John's saying. He's saying Christians cannot be marked or characterized by unrepentant habits of sin. He's saying that reality is an impossibility for a true Christian. And let's just let's be abundantly clear. We're talking about unrepentant habits of sin. That's what's incompatible with the Christian life. And I believe that's what John is getting at when he repeats the phrase, keeps on sinning. It's a person who knows they're sinning against God, they do not care that they're sinning against God, and they keep on doing it anyway. They hear admonitions from the, the, the scriptures. They, they have people in their lives who are, who are making them aware of their sin. They do not care, and they keep on sinning. That's, that's what we need to put to death. And, you know, I think about this in, in you know, my marriage, and if, if you're married or even just with friends, um, you, you can see how this would be true. If Erica tells me that I'm doing something that bothers or, or even if I'm doing something that hurts her, she tells me that. She makes me aware of it. She lets me know. And then I say, oh, okay. And I'm aware. And I keep doing it. And I keep doing it. And she tells me again, hey, what's going on? Why, why are you doing this? I, this? This is hurting me. I know. And I keep doing it. I mean, 
after a while, I'm demonstrating something to her. And it's that we don't really have a relationship. We're not, we're not, I don't, we're not really together. Now, that's not a perfect parallel to how our relationship works with God. But that's the type of behaviors we're talking about here, putting to death. We need to feel the strength of John's language. Listen to verse 8. Look at it with me. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. for For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Listen, if your life is marked by habitual, unrepentant sin, you keep on sinning. You're more like the devil's kid than God's. You know, it's kind of like where, where we're from in eastern Kentucky. Probably like this around here too. You see someone be like, oh yeah, that's old, that's old John's boy right there. You know, it's like if, if in the church you have, you're just unrepentant and habitual sin. You keep on sinning. John's basically saying, oh yeah, that's Satan's boy over there. You know, that's Satan's boy. He's saying he's God's kid. That's Satan's boy though. It's a real danger. Feel it. God's children are meant to become like him. And he goes on to say in verse 9, it's so strong. Listen, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I wish I could nuance that for you. I wish I, wish I could say, well, listen, he said it, but he really means it. I'm sorry. It's too clear. It's too simple. We have to put sin to death in our lives for holiness, for the likeness of Jesus to grow in our church. We cannot look like Jesus if we do not put this kind of sinning to death, this habitual, this practice of sin. If we're ignoring sin in our lives, we cannot grow in the likeness of Jesus. It can't happen. It's impossible. The pursuit of holiness through sin-killing habits is eternally urgent and significant. I hope you feel that. If we have a church culture in which all we do is teach about God's grace and believe in God's grace without ever striving in the power of God's grace to look more like Jesus, we will fall into these habits of sin. And habits of sin are spiritually destructive. Our habits, our repetitive thoughts, words, and actions will either be evidence that we belong to God in Christ or evidence that we don't. Again, it's not the basis. We've already, we've already handled that. It's not the basis, but it will be evidence. It is eternally urgent and significant that the pursuit of holiness becomes a cultural norm in our church. Now, what, is, what does this practically look like for us as a faith family? What does putting sin to death look like in a church? I want you to think about three habits. Three habits. These are sin-killing habits. Because that just sounds really good. Like, yeah, I want to kill sin. I want to put sin to death. And you're like, how are you going to do that? I don't know, but it sounds good. I may just put it somewhere. Hey, remember, kill sin today. And you don't know what you're doing, really. That's just a, a, a creative, you know, way of, of saying, you know, put, put sin to death as we have in, in the scriptures. But there are three habits that can actually help you do that. Are you ready? Habit number one, we can call the resist habit. The resist habit. We resist temptation. Resist it. That's how you fight sin. 
That's how you kill sin in your life, is when you feel tempted, when you feel tempted to do something that you know is sinful or disobedient against God, you don't just give in because it feels good. You don't just give in to it. You resist it. You know, when pride or jealousy or bitterness or anger starts to rise up in your heart, you keep you just keep it down. You just resist. You resist. I will not. I will not be bitter today. I'm not going to do it. That, that looked different from person to person. For some people, immediately entering into a time of prayer is, is something that can help you resist temptation. For some of you, it's immediately putting your running shoes on and going outside for a walk or a run. You know, to do something like that. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you need to go to sleep. Maybe you're hungry, you know, and you can resist temptation by eating. I don't need to resist temptation by eating because that feeds right into the temptation. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> I need to do something else. Um, but whenever you feel tempted, just don't, don't give in to it so easily. Develop habits of resisting. Okay, habit number two, confession, the confession habit. Our impulse, our second nature impulse when we sin should not be to hide it or cover it up or pretend it's not happening. That's how sins go from individual actions to habits. You sin in some way, you, you gossip with someone, you know, maybe you have someone who, who you know, you hang out together, and, and you're, you're just, this one time you gossip, you know, like, ah, that didn't feel so great. I probably, I probably should not gossip like that. And then, you know, you, you hang out with them again, and you're like, hmm, what else could we talk about? I don't know, let's talk about somebody else, you know, and you gossip again. And, and you just kind of let it linger, and you're not confessing it, you're not talking about it as something you probably shouldn't do. Over time, eventually, you wake up, and you're like, that's all we do. We just gossip. It's a habit. And they're dangerous, and they form when we don't confess. So our natural impulse when we sin should be to bring it into the light, to confess it, not always to another person. That's not always appropriate. But confess your sins before God and confess your sins before others when it is appropriate. And then finally, the repentance habit. This is how you kill sin. This is not easy. These are not easy things. Resist temptation. Confess your sins and repent. But it does choke the life out of sin, especially habitual sins. We do this, you know, when you sin and you confess that sin, if you need to repent, you repent. You turn. You apologize. You, you, you empathize with, with the person that you have sinned against. What if you had a daily habit of resisting temptation? What if you had a daily habit of confession and repentance? If that happened, your heart, and if we did it together, the culture of our church would be so healthy. It would be so healthy if our second nature, default response to sin, was to resist it before it comes in. If it does come in, to confess it and repent. Okay, so first, holiness in the church involves putting sin to death, but secondly, it involves a practice or a habit of righteousness. So this is the other end of John's logic. The goal, the goal of the Christian life, the goal of our church culture, is not just to occasionally do some good deeds. Holiness becomes reality in our lives and in our church when it is practiced. He says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Don't you love that simplicity? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. This is how we become like Jesus. By the power of God's grace, 
and through practice, through the practice or, or, or through habits. You see, the pursuit of holiness is marked and characterized by spiritual habits, not just individual actions. When John uses the, the language, keep on sinning, as we said, he's getting at the idea of sin as a habit, not just sin as an action. So we need to counter that, not just with, you know, acts of righteousness, acts of obedience, but habits of righteousness and habits of obedience. Spiritual habits that are rooted in the gospel and focused on the means of grace, like, like scripture and prayer and gathered worship or the community of the church. That, that are given to us by God, they will shape us into the image of Jesus. So holiness grows in a church over time in the same way that humility does, in the same way that love does. And that's why we have to remember this formula, gospel safety time. Because if we don't, we're going to give up on each other because guess what? There are going to be a lot of days we don't look very holy. We're, we're, we're going to sin against each other and we're going to struggle. But, but that does not take us off the rails that we're not off track if we sin we're off track if we ignore our sin if we aren't putting it to death and if we aren't developing these healthy spiritual habits so what does it look like to, to pursue righteousness to practice righteousness in our church i believe that one way to get on that road is to develop four spiritual habits four habits the bible habit the bible habit so this is on the positive end this isn't killing sin. This is pursuing righteousness. The Bible habit. Habitually read and study your Bible. We talked about that at the beginning of the year. Some of you, I, I know for a fact, have already developed a habit of Bible reading. And you, you are right where you should be in our, our Bible reading plan for the year. Um, if some of you have fallen off the whack. That's okay. If you've fallen off, it's okay. You can always get right back on. It's the beauty of the app that we're using, Read Scripture. Um, but develop a habit of reading and studying the Bible. We have to be saturated in God's Word. We need to know what our new lives in Christ are supposed to look like. We need to know what God expects of us. And we need to make sure the standard that we're living by is actually God's standard and not one we've created for ourselves. The Bible habit. We need the prayer habit. Again, this is not just, yeah, I believe in prayer. Prayer is a good thing to do. I sometimes do that too, you know, sometimes when I eat. Usually in public, you know, we get together, I'll pray then. It's usually when I pray. No, we need a prayer habit. We need to draw near to God through prayer. Communion with God creates desires in our hearts to live according to his ways. We will want to pursue holiness when we're communing with God through prayer. So develop a habit of prayer where maybe the first thing you do when you wake up or, you know, there's uh, the common rule, something that I, I, I try to follow every single day is habits of prayer. They happen three times a day. You, you pray in the morning when you wake up, you pray at lunch, and then you pray at the end of the day, three prayers a day. And it's just a simple, easy tool to, to help you develop a habit of prayer. We also need the worship habit. So the Bible habit, prayer habit, worship habit. We need to gather for worship as often as we can. During corporate worship, we behold the glory and splendor of God and his word. And guess what? We don't do it in little bubbles. We do it together as a church. We're all seeing how grand and glorious God is at the same time. And the more that you are captivated by the beauty of Jesus, the more that you will want to be like him. The worship habit. And then finally, the relationship habit. So Bible, prayer, worship, relationships. This is how we pursue righteousness together. This is how a, a gospel culture is marked by holiness. We need one another. We cannot put sin to death alone. We cannot pursue holiness alone. 
We can't develop these healthy spiritual habits alone. Actually, if you want to guarantee that you don't develop a spiritual habit, try to do it by yourself. You won't do it. You do it with a friend, I, I can almost guarantee it will happen if you do it with a friend. If, if you want to pray more and you have someone that is praying with you, maybe you have a weekly call or you meet every other week for coffee and what you do is you talk together, you share needs, and then you pray. Maybe those develop from life group, whatever it is. The point is we need each other. We, we need one another. So, so develop a habit of forming relationships. Reach out to others. Make, make the, the, the concept of friendship normal for you, where you want to make friends with others in the church, not just be in the same church with them and, and sometimes have awkward, you know, uh, small talk conversations over lunch, and that's really the extent of it. No, strive to make friends. Um, take the risk of reaching out to someone, inviting them over to your house or inviting them out to to dinner or something like that, you know, building relationships will help us pursue holiness. What if it became normal in our church for people to read and study the Bible together? What if prayer groups like the men's group on Wednesday became normal? It was just expected. It's just another thing that we do. What if we had more intentionality and excitement about gathering for worship each week? What if you felt weird if you were not reaching out to others to make friendships in the church? You see, a gospel culture is marked by holiness. A church culture marked by holiness becomes reality not when church members spy on each other or not when we create our own standards of righteousness. A church culture marked by holiness becomes reality when church members work together to develop spiritual habits as we kill our sinful habits. We can only be holy as God is holy when the gospel takes root in our hearts when we put into practice the new power that his grace has given us over sin. In a gospel culture, we read and study the Bible so we can know God's word and his will. In a gospel culture, we work together to develop habits of prayer and worship so we can grow in our love for God. And in a gospel culture, we work together to pursue righteousness and kill sin. The gospel creates a culture, going back to week one, that reflects its nature. When the gospel really becomes central to our church, when deep gospel roots are planted, we're going to see humility, love, and holiness form in us and grow in us. And when that happens, our way of life in the church will reflect and glorify the risen Jesus however imperfectly, with much gospel, a fortress of safety in the church, and loads of time, I do believe we can cultivate a church culture in which God is glorified, Jesus is seen, the Spirit's work is evident, and we can genuinely grow in his likeness.